All right, here we go. Back into Romans. We've got to remember uh, where we've been. We're going to be in the third chapter today. Uh, we're going to go all the way through verse 26. We're going to cover a lot of real estate here in the text. So get ready. Stick with me. Um, but it'll be fun. Don't worry. It'll be good. It'll be edifying. Is that the right word I should use? Not fun. Should I use edifying? Uh, Remember where we've been. Remember where we've been. The Apostle Paul is writing to a church uh, in Rome, uh, hence the name Romans. But Paul's never been to this church. Paul didn't found this church. Most of his letters are written to churches that he started. Not so with Rome. He's never been there. He hasn't met these people. But one thing he knows, traveling all around the Mediterranean region, is that wherever these churches are popping up, uh, problems pop up along with them. Why? Why? It's because of who's making up the church. On the one hand, you have uh, Jewish Christians. Remember, Christianity came from Judaism. None of the Jews who, who became Christians would have considered themselves converts. They just said, hey, Christianity, Jesus is the culmination of the Old Testament. He is what it means to be Jewish. And so they didn't consider themselves to be a different religion or a different sect until, really, until they were kicked out. So you had those folks on the one hand. But then on the other hand, you had Greeks and Romans and barbarians, Scythians, whatever other terms uh, the Bible uses for people who were not Jewish. Uh, Gentiles, that's the one umbrella term there. Gentiles who would become Christian. Now, they didn't necessarily know about the Old Testament, about Moses, about uh, Torah or the law, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Uh, they certainly weren't interested in circumcision, and the dietary laws probably didn't uh, uh, interest them. They probably had a real affinity for, for, for bacon and pork chops, and they didn't really, you know, that they weren't excited about the, 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 law, the laws, all these 613 laws that were in there about the laws of Moses. But wherever these churches came together, you had the Jewish Christians and the non-Jewish Christians coming together to form a new thing, these Christian communities, churches, families. And so you had this tension, this tension because the Jewish people very oftentimes said, hey, to be, because Jesus was Jewish and because we're all still Jewish, what you guys are coming into, what you're, you are the converts, you Gentiles, you're converting into our thing. And so you need to be circumcised. You need to obey all of these laws. You need to change your lives so much that, that your outward appearance looks like you look like a Jew. And this was a huge problem. And Paul says, no, 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 no. We can't let that happen. Last week we talked about Paul going even so far as to say true circumcision is circumcision of the heart. God doesn't care what you uh, look like on the outside. That's not what the, the whole thing was about to begin with. But what God is after is a heart change. Faith in him. Trust in him. Really what it's all about is loving him. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. That's what it's really all about. And so Paul, much, much, much of Paul's ministry is spent correcting that error, saying you don't have to look like a Jew in order to be a true Jew. And we talked about being a true Jew last week. Nevertheless, it's a problem that that persists. I think this is maybe not a, a perfect analogy. This is not by any stretch a perfect analogy. But looking around at my world today in the news, I would, I'm trying to come up with, well, what would it feel like? Because we don't feel this tension, do we? We, 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 we? we just don't understand it. We don't get it. I, I imagine if we had, like, people from another culture, 
And maybe they looked different than us. Maybe they were a different skin color. Maybe they had different customs. Maybe they smelled different than us. And they were coming to our church, and they were worshiping in this other language. And we were saying, no, 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 you have to worship in English. It would sort of, kind of, sort of be something like that. And then can you imagine what kind of tension would, would, would come about that? And then our, other, our leaders, uh, maybe at the denominational level or something like that, would be saying, you can't split into separate churches. You've got to worship together because we're one family. But yet we have this problem on the ground of how are we supposed to, we're so different. How are we supposed to make that work? And actually, if you look around our neighborhoods and if you look around our nation, the 9 or 10 o'clock hour on Sunday morning is the most segregated we ever are as a culture. That's a shame. So actually, this thing that Paul is kind of wrestling with these baby, baby churches about, it's still with us. It's not Jew and Gentile anymore. It's ethnic lines, cultural lines, socioeconomic lines sometimes. But it's still with us. What's that unity mean? What's it mean to be one in Christ? That's sort of what he's wrestling with. So we're going to go to the text today, uh, chapter 3. Paul has just said, like I said, circumcision is actually a matter of the heart, and a true Jew is one who is a Jew uh, inwardly. And so now he's going to uh, address some objections you might have. You can imagine the guy raising his hand in class and saying, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Ah, You've gone too far now, Paul. What about this? What about this? What about this? He's going to address several of those whatabouts as we get started here. So that's what you're going to be jumping into. If you haven't been with us the past couple weeks, that's what we're jumping into. And we'll see how he deals with this, how he unpacks these sort of objections, okay? Uh, I'm going to be reading from a, a different translation than probably any of you have. It's called the Christian Standard Bible. It's a new translation I've been using a lot. I, I, I like it. If you want to, I'm not going to spend time and unpack why I bounce from translation to translation sometimes. But if you're interested, if you'd like to know, I'd be happy to talk to you about that. But you can still follow along in your, in your pew Bible or in your personal Bible, Romans 3. Uh, just know that my words will be slightly, slightly different uh, than, than yours, okay? Let's ask God's blessing then over this, uh, the reading of his word, and then let's go to it, shall we? Would you bow with me? Uh, Father, we come before you again with ears that we, are, that we open up. We, 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 we voluntarily, willfully open up, Father, because we want to hear from you. And we also, Lord, by your grace and by the power of your Holy Spirit, we want to open up our hearts. And we want to be available to the way that your spirit wants to, 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 to convict us and also to encourage us, to change us, to motivate us. We want all of those things. So, but Lord, there's going to be barriers in the way. Maybe some of us will re- want to raise our hands and, and, and say something like, I object, I object. Father, uh, in your love and grace, be patient with us as we, as we wrestle with those objections. But ultimately, Father, please, please give us the faith to stand not on our own understanding, but to ultimately yield all that we have and all that we are to you. So in other words, God, have your way with us, your people. May it be so in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's go to the text. I'm going to start in chapter 3, verse 1. As I said, objection number 1, here here, here it comes. Uh, So what advantage does the Jew have? Or what is the benefit... Of circumcision. Considerable in every way, Paul answers. 
First, they were entrusted with the very words of God. As we go through this, I'm going to pause as we go through, and then I'll make some comments. They're entrusted with the very words of God. Some of your translations, perhaps they say, they use a different word, the oracles of God. That's an interesting word, isn't it? Oracles. Um, Paul, the reason that's there, Paul uses a, a unique form of the, of the word logos. Logos is, means word in, in, in Greek. And Paul uses a unique form of that word that's nowhere else in the Bible here. And so some translators, they simply follow the King James Version, was the first to do this. And they use a unique English word because Paul used a unique Greek word. And they use that unique English word, oracles. Kind of interesting, but it's not really hugely impactful to the text. He's just talking about the scriptures. Oracles of God, it's just the words of God. That's what the Jews have been entrusted with. The Jews have the Old Testament. They have the law of Moses. They have the words of God. And so the Jews should feel special. They should feel privileged because they've been honored by God as the keepers of God's word. But here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, but be, be careful, guys. Because the possession of God's word, just because you have the Bible, or just because even if you're a Bible ninja or a Ph.D. theologian, it does not give you special standing before God. You know that Lee Greenwood song, I'm Proud to Be in that I, I could probably just say that Lee Greenwood song because did he make any other songs? Uh, maybe he did. You know, I'm proud to be an American, right? You know that song. Well, I'm kind of reminded of that when I, when I read this text because, yeah, we are proud to be Americans. Of course we're proud to be Americans. But we would be pretty foolish to say it's a privilege to be an American because of X, Y, Z, and you know, we also have a special place in God's heart, you know. Really. We're somehow closer to God because we can recite the Declaration of Independence. I actually can't, but you know what I mean. No, we're not closer to God because of that. We're privileged. We're privileged, absolutely. We're blessed in a unique way, absolutely. But we're not closer to God because of that. It sounds silly to us. Americans have done a lot of good, and there's a lot of good to celebrate about America, and we do. We celebrate that. And then when we see that Americans have done bad things, or there's things that need to be corrected, repented of, changed, we don't dare shy away from that. We confess those things as well. But this idea of having a special place in God's heart, it would not sound silly at all to the Jews. That's what they were told since they were Learning to walk. That's what they've been taught. They're chosen by God. They had the marks on their body to prove it. They were weird. God made them weird. He gave them a whole bunch of laws and rules to follow, all for the purpose of making them weird, making them different from everybody else. Why? Because they're set apart. They're supposed to be different. So Paul says, yes, we've been blessed and used by God, For God's wonderful purposes, that's awesome. Let's celebrate it. But that doesn't let us off the hook. At the end of the day, we're going to be judged by the same standard, by the same yardstick as all these other guys. We're all in this same boat together, and it's creating this crisis. You can see why people didn't want to hear it. It creates this crisis within Judaism. He goes on. Let's go on to verse 3. What if, this is the next objection, right? What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? You can imagine somebody again raising their hand. Wait a minute, Paul. You're saying, here, God has promised to bless us, the Jewish people. And you're saying that the God who promised to bless us now isn't going to bless us? 
But instead, because of our sin, he's going to condemn us. We're under his wrath and judgment. Ma-uh. He promised to bless us. That makes God a liar. Okay, yeah, sure. We know that we, some of us maybe, uh, maybe all of us, have been unfaithful. But a promise is a promise. And God made a promise. If there's anybody's promise you can trust, it would be God's promise. <clears throat> this takes us back to the crisis that we, that we talked about in chapter 1. Is God righteous or not? Will God be faithful to his promises? Will he be a promise keeper to Israel, to the Jewish people? Or will he be just? And will he punish human evil like all of us want him to? And we know that he should if he's good and holy. Which is it? It would seem that he can't be both. So does God punishing Israel make God a liar? Verse 4, Paul says, not at all. Let God be true and every human being be a liar. As it is written. So that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. What's he quoting there? He's quoting a super famous psalm, Psalm 51, the one that Diane read for us. It's a psalm by King David. Every Jew would have known it. King David, hero of the faith, right? The greatest king ever. And what's he do? He uses his power to take a woman that wasn't his wife, that was the wife of another, impregnate her, and then what does he do? On top of that, he arranges for her husband to be killed, And he thinks he's gotten away with it. He's probably pushing all of that out of his mind pretty effectively on a day-to-day basis until the prophet Nathan comes to him and calls him out. And when Nathan calls him out, it cuts him to the heart. David falls on his face before God. And and what, what is most striking about this psalm is there is no room for any excuses. There is no, yeah, but here's kind of why. I am the king after all. Yeah, but now that Bathsheba sure got a better life now living in the palace than she did before. Yeah, but it's just, he could have done all that. He could have done any of that, but he doesn't do that. He falls on his face crying to God for mercy. knowing full well that God owes him nothing but condemnation. This, Paul is saying, you Jews who are saying, who, who are saying well, God shouldn't punish us because he promised us. It doesn't matter if we, we're not good people, if we're sin, if we rebel against God. He promised us. Paul's saying, you shouldn't be saying that. Your posture is supposed to be like King David's posture. That's the only acceptable response to what I am telling you now about how far you are from God is to fall on your face and to say, to plead to God for his mercy. I wonder how many of us have had the privilege and the blessing to feel the gravity of our sin. Not to push it away, not to distract our mind with the latest cell phone game or, or with some kind of excuse or with some kind of excursion or activity or entertainment or something like that, but to actually sit there and to feel the weight of guilt of sin before a holy God and to plead for his mercy. I wonder how many of us have even done that for a minute. Next, Paul offers another argument that people were making against Christians at the time. 
in verse 5. He says, But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I am using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, If my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously say that we say, Let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is just. Evil is evil. Wrong is wrong. Even if good things come of it, it's still wrong. There have been people who have sinned against me. And God has taken those sins that they've committed against me, and he's done wonderful things with it. He has changed me. He has grown me. G-R-O-W-N. I don't know why those things pop into my head sometimes. He has grown me through these experiences. And I, am the, not, I couldn't be the person I am today had I not gone through that, had I not actually been wronged by that person, right? You all probably know that feeling. Does that mean that what they did was okay? Everybody go like this. You with me? Good. No, of course not. Did you happen to see the testimony given by Rachel Denholander a few weeks ago against the doctor who sexually assaulted her and over a hundred other young girls? The Michigan State uh, gymnastics scandal. Did you happen to see her testimony? She extended him forgiveness, and everybody's quick to point that out, and that's, that's awesome. But she said that he doesn't really need forgiveness from her. She expressed hope that what he had done would one day wreck him. Wreck him so that he would be crushed by the weight of guilt, and then, why would she wish that upon him? Because and then he might seek forgiveness from the only one that it matters from, from Jesus. But then she did something else. At the sentencing of, his name is Nasser, Larry Nasser. At his sentencing, she and the other victims were given time to speak. She was able to address the judge and give her opinion as to how harsh a sentence this man should receive. Now, she's just forgiven him herself. And she's just said that the forgiveness of God is there for you, and I hope that you find it. And then she turns to the judge, and she says, But as far as the law of the land is concerned, how much is a little girl worth? She says, How much is a little girl worth? And how many little girls has he damaged for their entire lives? She says, a little girl has infinite worth because she's made in the image of God. So therefore, 
the punishment that you hand down today should be as great as the law allows. And the judge agreed with her. Forgiveness and justice are not mutually exclusive. I have to say that to people a lot. Just because you forgive somebody doesn't mean there are no longer consequences for what they've done. You may not be able to go back to the way things were. There might need to be limits put in place. There might even need to be retribution, not by you, but by the legal system that God has set up. Because that legal system is supposed to reflect the justice of God. And when it does so well, it's a beautiful thing. It points us to judgment and it points us to grace at the same time. God has used what Larry Nasser did to all of those girls for great good. God has used it to demonstrate his justice on a global scale. God has used it to to empower and to heal the victims. God has used, actually, he has used it to, to stop the evil. He has finally stopped the evil that was happening. And he will use it to prevent future evil. He will continue to use it. And that's just this side of eternity, folks. We don't know how God will take something like that and use it on the other side of eternity. He will bring such great good out of even the most wicked acts we can't even imagine. We have no idea how he's going to do it, but that's, he's going to do it. And he will be glorified. His glory will be dis- displayed uh, throughout the universe when, he, when he's unveiled against the evil that you and I deal with every day. But be that as it may, even though that is true, no matter how much good God brings out of an evil act, It was never okay. It was never not evil. It was never excusable. I'll say this one last thing and move on. For Christians, righteous ends never justify unrighteous means. Righteous ends never justify unrighteous means. The sin that Paul rails against back in chapter 1 is calling evil good and calling good evil. And you know that's really the only sin that there is? Every sin is essentially challenging God's definition of what's good and of what's evil. Go back to Eve in the Garden of Eden. You remember that story, right? Let's look at it. Chapter 3. Verse 1, another chapter 3, verse 1. The serpent said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said you must not eat or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Every sin you've ever committed was the exact same thing. You came up with some reason why God was mistaken or why you were justified or why it wasn't such a big deal. And you did it. 
And even though your sin wasn't the first, like Eve's was, it was every bit as consequential as hers. I think that's part of the genius of this creation story, is that they don't kill somebody. They don't maim somebody. They don't curse somebody. They just eat an apple. Seems like such an insignificant thing, doesn't it? I think that's done intentionally. The smallest sin is enough to damn the human race. Mm. Let's go on. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Talking about the Jews again. Not at all, for we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, now here Paul's going to unleash a string of Old Testament quotes, mostly from the Psalms. The Jews would have, this would have been very familiar to them, but it wouldn't have been very familiar for somebody to apply them to them. Uh, it begins with, uh, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. Remember that one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that would be the Jews, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. That sounds terrible. Holy smokes, man. Romans is tough. This is a tough book. It's tough. It's not only because we have to think really hard, but it's also because Paul gives us a lot of hard truths, things that we'd rather really not think about. It's not just Romans, though, and it's not just Paul. Paul's simply taking what the Bible teaches from cover to cover, and he's distilling it down into what he thinks we really need to understand. And this is the hard reality that the Bible teaches. The Bible does not have a high view of human nature. Uh, It doesn't. The Bible does not have a high view of human nature. You, your wife, your kids, your Aunt Tilly, you're not okay. You're, I mean, me. I'll want myself in there with you. We are not okay. We are wicked, we are bad, and we stink. As my brother used to tease me, you're ugly and your mom addresses you funny. That's kind of, the Bible doesn't pull any punches. Now, all people, when they come against this truth, they'll react in one of three ways. There's only three ways you'll react to it. One, they will deny it. They're offended. Anyone would even think such an awful thought. Ugh, how archaic, barbarian of you. And they just walk away, right? those Christians. Number two, there's ambivalence. You know what ambivalence means? It means this. Meh. Meh. 
They might believe it and they might not. Either way, they're just not going to think about it very much. They're certainly not going to let the truth of sin penetrate their hearts. And then the third reaction people have is like King David in Psalm 51. They cry out for mercy. Only one of those reactions opens the, opens the gateway between you and God. Only one of those, gate, those reactions avoids eternal death. Maybe you're saying, I'm not that bad. I do not fit the, what does that say? Um, Romans 3.12, all have turned away. They've together become worthless. I'm not worthless. Just ask my kindergarten teacher. You might say, there's no one who does good, not even one. You might say, I do plenty of good. Just ask the guy I volunteer with. I give blood every so, every so many months. I, I do plenty of good. Come on now. Well, you're right. You do do good things. You can list many good things that you do. Let me close by painting a picture to you, a picture for you. I didn't come up with this, but it, it's good. Lots of, I've heard lots of preachers use this example because it's a good one. And so I'm going to use it. Imagine a ship sailing on the ocean, sailing the seven seas. And on this ship, you get a bird's eye view. You get to look at the crew. And the crew is a jovial bunch. They're, being, they're, they're, they're really nice to each other. Every day is a party, eat, drink, and be merry. Seems to be their way of life. They share everything they have in common. When one person, when one of them gets sick, the rest of them uh, nurse him back to health. It seems like, uh, it even seems like a picture of love on that ship. And then one day, the captain spots another vessel uh, on the horizon. And he says, ahoy to starboard to intercept. And then the, the, the sail, the, the crew jumps to it, dutifully obeying. The sails are unfurled. And then the, the, the dreadful secret or the dreadful reality becomes apparent because the, one of the biggest sails that comes open is their flag. It's a black flag with a white skull and crossbones emblazoned across the middle. And they make their way for that ship. And when they get to that ship, they board it. They slaughter everybody on board. They take away all the loot onto their ship. And then when they're a safe distance away, they blast holes in the side and they sink all the evidence to the bottom of the ocean. And then they throw a party. Yo-ho-ho. And they're friends again. They're good people. Or so they've convinced themselves. They do lots of nice stuff for one another. They're really good to one another. But the project of their lives is piracy. What they have made, the point of their lives, is piracy. And the Bible says, yes, you, people do lots of good things for one another. But that's immaterial. That's neither here nor there. Because the project, what you have made the project of your life to be, is to be your own God. To call your own shots. Push God out of the way and for you to determine what is best. For you to determine what is right and what is wrong. That can't be. That right there. It almost doesn't even seem like a big deal when I put it that way, does it? But that right there is what keeps you separated from God for eternity. It's self-centeredness. It's a breaking of the first commandment to have no other gods before me. Because God created you to be human, and by being human, he means he is your God. You serve him.
That's why no matter how many good deeds we do, it doesn't change the essence of what we are, of who we are. We're pirates. We're self-centered. We're lost. The good news is, Paul has spent a lot of time talking about what's wrong with us, what's wrong with the world, the problem of sin. But that's really, Romans is really an exciting book. It's really a good news book. And I, I feel bad not spending more time on these next verses. I'm just going to read them for you and we're going to close because they're hugely important. They're hugely exciting. It's, the, it's just incredible. Uh, and we're going to get back to them when we come back to Romans after Easter. But look here now. In verse 21, Paul says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This puzzle, God has revealed it. He's figured out the puzzle. This righteousness, this righteousness is given. It's not given to God. He's had it all along. Who's it given to? It's given to you. This righteousness, this perfect record, this forgiveness, this, it's given to you. It's given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile to all who believe. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. How did He do that? What did he, this is how He did that. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. He presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood, Christ's blood, to be received by faith. God did this to demonstrate God's righteousness. Because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Okay, why hasn't God punished our sins? Because he's righteous, he's good, he's merciful. That's part of who God is. He's demonstrating that in Jesus. But now he's also, verse 26, he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just. So as to be just to punish evil uh, and to be the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So though we are like pirates, here's the deal. We don't have to be. We don't have to stand in that ship, on that pirate ship. It's like there's another one out there to the side saying, come on over here and we'll forget about everything you ever did. We'll wipe your record clean. Jesus says, Jesus never sinned. But yet upon him was placed the chastisement of us all. See, God, David says in Psalm 51, you remember what he says? Against you only have I sinned. That's a weird thing to say because he impregnated this woman and he uh, committed adultery and his sin is going to cause the baby to die. Yet he says, against you, God, only have I sinned. He knows the truth. Against God only has he sinned ultimately. That's why only God can provide the sacrifice that is adequate to forgive his sin. And that's what Jesus wants to do for you. You don't have to live under that condemnation. You can be completely forgiven. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter how long you've done it. And it's not a matter of doing the right things. It's a matter of faith, of believing. You come to him you believe and you repent and you trust. Trusting is simply part of what it means to believe. And then you take that first step in a new direction 
as a child of God. If you haven't done that, do that today. If you've done that before, as we pray, as we close in prayer, remember. Remember who you are. Remember how great the love of God is for you. Because all that stuff that you've done, all that stuff that you're ashamed of and you don't want to talk about, it's gone. Jesus has borne the punishment. It is gone. As far as the east is from the west, it is gone. You bear it no more. Let's pray. God, we thank you, Lord, for loving us enough to be honest with us. So many in this world want to say, want to make us feel good at the expense of the, at the, at the, expense of the truth. And they'll say, oh, you're okay. There's, you're okay. There's nothing wrong with you. But you, Lord, you love us too much for that. And you say, actually, there is something wrong with you. It's your heart. You do not obey because you do not believe. Father, we want to believe and we want to obey. And so for those maybe who have never uh, prayed a prayer like this before, Lord, may my words be their words. Father, I believe. Help my unbelief. I have sinned against you. Father, forgive my sin. I accept the gift of forgiveness that your son offered me on the cross 2,000 years ago. May his blood cover me. And Father, I want to trust in you. I want to leave this place different, with different priorities, with different loves, with a different motivation for life. I want to be different. Show me the way, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.